other people if they have a disagreement that money to hire a company for example between Najaf and Karbala or Baghdad and they are to be inspired by the sacrifice of Imam al Hussein. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم One of the greatest areas of strength for the followers of Ahl al-Bayt is their love and dedication to the family of Rasulullah and indeed the greatest area of the strength of the Shia is their unconditional love, dedication and devotion to Al-Imam Sayyid al-Shuhada Abu Abdullah al-Hussein. Tonight and tomorrow you will find hundreds of millions of people gather all around the world to, com to commemorate the tragedy of Al-Imam Al-Hussein. <clears throat> Therefore, you find that our true unity and strength is found under the banner of Al-Imam Abu Abdullah Al-Hussein. When Muslims when Muslims discuss Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca, they describe it through one of the one of its own one of its most unique aspects, and that is the unity amongst humanity at Hajj. Unity through the diversity of people. You will find the African, and the Indian, and the Arab, and the Persian, and the Russian, and the Chinese, wearing the two white garments of the Ihram, becoming one under God, becoming brothers and sisters in faith, The rich, the poor, the famous, the impoverished, the president, the teacher, the student are all the same in Hajj in the eyes of God. However, for us, the followers of Ahl al-Bayt, There is a greater miracle than Hajj. And that is the pilgrimage to Al-Imam Al-Hussein. Where you find millions upon millions of people. Men, women, children using every mean of transportation to get themselves to the holy city of Karbala. Walking to the shrine of Al-Imam Abu Abdullah Al-Hussein. 
not wearing white ihrams, but decked out in black to mourn the aza of Sayyid al-Shuhada. All carrying the love of Imam al-Husayn and chanting, Labbayka ya Husayn. They go to Hussein because he's the pathway to the Almighty Allah. They are there to be inspired by the sacrifice of Imam al Hussein fi sabilillah. They are there because Hussein is their wasila to the Almighty God. And there you will find the greatest form of unity amongst the followers of Ahlul Bayt. So much sacrifice. So much generosity. So much compassion. So much faith. But unfortunately, in every Muharram, When you look deeper inside this unity amongst the followers of the Ahlul Bayt, you find that within this unity, there's also disunity. And this subject is more visible, it's more witnessed and discussed through this period of Muharram and Safar where people are no longer focused on the bigger picture. People are no longer focused on the mission of Imam Al-Hussein, the goals and objectives of Imam Abu Abdullah Al-Hussein. But then they start focusing on those side discussions. And we are divided sometimes by the language we speak. Sometimes we are divided through the political differences that we have. Sometimes we are divided due to our culture and background. And at times we are divided due to the different scholars and maraja' within the school of Ahlul Bayt, whether it is here in Sydney, whether it's in Australia, or in the United Kingdom, or the United States, whether you are in London or Dearborn, every community that you go and you visit, the most important question is, who do you follow? Who is your marja'? And the division begins from there. I will only attend an organization that belongs to my marja'. I will only Listen to a speaker who follows my marja. 
I will only donate to a facility that promotes my marja. Now it doesn't stop there. But then the accusations begin. Accusing organizations, scholars, and the maraja' themselves. Accusing some of the scholars to work for the CIA or the MI6. Accusing some scholars that they are against the Ahlul Bayt. And the accusations go on amongst people. We don't stop and wonder if you just read the Quran, Wala taqfu ma laysa laka bihi ilm. إِنَّ السَّمْعَ وَالْبَصَرَ وَالْفُؤَادِ كُلُّ أُولَئِكَ كَانَ عَنْهُ مَسْؤُولًا Allah says, before you speak, know that on the day of judgment, you will be asked of everything you heard, everything you witnessed, and everything you spoke. It is the day that our limbs become a witness to what we have done. Our hands, our eyes, and most importantly this tongue. This tongue itself will be a witness to what we have said. Those ears will be a witness to what we have heard. Do we not think of that day? Even when we witness this global movement of Arba'een, the walk to Imam Al-Hussein, when you reach the Mawakib, the rest areas between Najaf and Karbala or Baghdad and Karbala and the different cities, every Mawakib has put a picture of the Marja right at the entrance. <coughs> And people walk through that mokeb saying, I'm not going to go there. Why? Because I don't follow that marja. It's a rest area, Habibi. It's a mokeb. You're going to go drink tea. So, is drinking tea according to this marja different than the other marja? Or is resting, for example, different than the fatwa of this marja and your marja? There's about 1,000 poles, rest stations, stops for those who have gone to Arba'in. For those who haven't gone, inshallah, you will go this year. And on every pole, there's about five different pictures of five different maraja'. And you wonder, why do we have those pictures? This impoverished country of Iraq that has the greatest numbers of orphans that has the greatest number of impoverished people that has the greatest number of widows 
What good do those pictures do for them? Instead of spending a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars on those pictures on the way of the walk of Arba'een, go and look for those people and their families who gave their lives to defend the shrine of Imam al Hussein, to defend the shrine of Abu al Fadl, to defend the shrine of Samarra. Thousands of young men were killed defending the cause of Imam al-Hussein. Thousands of mothers were willing to give their sons. Thousands of young women were willing to depart from their husbands for the sake of the Ahlul Bayt. And now they are neglected. Now no one is asking about them. Just like we discussed the ahkam of salah, the laws of salah, and just like we discussed the laws of siyam, we also should discuss such laws as well. The laws pertaining to our day-to-day lives. Also the laws pertaining the ziyarah of Arba'een. Of course, the ziyarah of Arba'een is extremely important, just like salah is also important, siyam is also important. But that does not mean we should not discuss its laws. It's regulations, how people should behave there, what should be their priority. There is so much food that's going to waste, so much money that's going to waste while this money and this food can be given to the impoverished people of Iraq throughout the year, to the orphans throughout the year. I personally met someone last year in Arba'in, he told me I had eight dinners. I had dinner eight times this evening. There is no need. If you have extra money, save that money and give it in the name of Imam al Hussein, in the name of Sayyid al Shuhada throughout the year to those, especially to those who, st- who stood defending the shrines of the Ahl al Bayt whether it's in Syria or elsewhere or Iraq or... There's people eating and throwing their garbage. This land, the city of Karbala is a sacred land. Some of ulama, some of the ulama, they don't even sleep the night in Karbala. They leave the, the close proximity of the city. Not to be disrespectful to the city of Imam al Hussein, to the sacred land. Land, it is not my words; it is the words of the Ma'asum. Tibtum says to the companions of Imam al Hussein. Tibtum, وطابت الأرض التي فيها دفنتم. That land is sacred. How are you throwing your garbage? For two months after the ziyarah of Arba'een, people are still picking up the garbage after the za'irin. This is not right. This is unacceptable. And if we don't speak about this, then this ziyarah is going to be the same. So wouldn't it be 
better if we spent that money to hire a company, for example. There are many companies, but let's hire 10 more, 20 more, 50 more that will clean up after the masses. That will remove the trash immediately. And you know, I tell you, some of those pictures of the scholars, they're not to be missed. They are bigger than the mokib itself. Literally. And you wonder, what's this picture doing? Is it So if I see a bigger picture, it means that this person has more ilm or more piety? What is the purpose? And I guarantee you, brothers and sisters, no marja' No marja' would accept this wastefulness when it comes to printing their pictures. No marja' Go and meet any marja' and ask him personally. Say to him that there is X amount of money being spent on your pictures. Do you allow this? They will tell you no. But the problem is, do we listen to the marja' Yes. When it benefits us, we listen. When it doesn't benefit us, we don't listen. Let's come back to the West. Let's come back to our communities. Why are we so divided? Why is there so much division? Why is it every night people come to me, Sayyidna, speak of this division within our community? Speak of the divide between the marajah. This is destroying our community. People are going around accusing one another. The other day someone told me, and I told you this, someone told me some communities are not accepting janazah from someone that follows another marja'. La ilaha. This divide is growing every single day. And that is why I am here to address this question. This very important topic. Do we have to follow one marja? Can I follow more than one marja? Are the maraja' meant to create disunity amongst our community? Are we meant to defame other people if they have a disagreement with us when it comes to the marja' we follow? Some of the things we believe, are they true? Or are they false? We will examine this topic in the following manner. Number one, we will examine chapter 9, Surah at Tawbah, verse 31. Number two, when was the concept of A'lamiyyah, most learned scholar, introduced? And the Shi'i ideology. Number three. 
What is the concept of udul? Number four. What is the concept of tab'id? Number five. What happens when there is a conflict between the fatwa of the marja' and the aql of the person? And number six, why is it that we have to follow the maraja? Allah, in chapter 9, verse 31, introduces a very beautiful notion. Allah says, اتخذوا أحبارهم ورحبانهم أربابا من دون الله The Christians, they took their scholars and their monks as gods besides the Almighty God. That's what Allah says in the Quran. So some of the Muslims, they went to Rasulullah. Ya Rasulullah, we've never seen any Christians worship monks or, or priests or scholars. It's not the case. What's this ayah saying? So Allah says, yes. But they misused their monks and scholars. Listen to this. Where when a scholar was meant to take them to God, it took them away from God. And that's what the Quran is saying. Instead of that scholar taking us to Allah, it's taking us away from Allah. Allah puts that to shame in the Holy Quran. He says the Christians used to do that with their scholars and priests and monks. This is an unacceptable act in the religion of Islam. And you wonder sometimes, you know, this member, who does it belong to? Because I hear the word ayatullah more on the member than Allah sometimes. This member belongs to Allah, to the Quran, and to the 14 ma'asums. That's it. Sometimes we hear the name of scholars more than we hear the name of the ma'asumin. We hear more fatwas than we hear verses from the Quran. Are we meant to follow them or worship them? Are we meant to emulate their teachings or create division within our community through their name and through their legacy? And the most interesting discussions you have with people, you'll have someone come tell you, well, Sayyidina, you know why I don't follow this marja'? Why? Because he's not the a'lam. You know why I don't follow this marja' because he's not a mujtahid. Habibi, have you spent time at the hawza? Yeah, I spend about eight hours a year at the hawza. Did you say eight hours a year? Yeah. When I arrived to Najaf for the Arba'in walk, we don't have a place to sleep, so we sleep at the local hawza there. 
sleeps at the house eight hours a year. Now he's talking about who's a'lam and who's not a'lam and who's a mujtahid and who's not a mujtahid. Who told you this marja is not a mujtahid? My uncle. What does he do? He owns a Dunkin' Donuts. Who told you this marja is a'lam? My dad. What does your dad do? Is he familiar with the Hausa? No, my dad owns a gas station. The scholars themselves, the scholars themselves, brothers and sisters, the maraja, the fuqaha, the mujtahids themselves, have a disagreement on defining who, what is a'lamiya. What does the most learned mean? Is it al-a'lam bil-Qur'an? Is it al-a'lam bil-Hadith? Is it al-a'lam bil-Rijal? Is it al-a'lam bil-Fiqh? Is it al-a'lam in usul fiqh Islamic legal theory? Does a'lamiya contain that somebody needs to know the Qur'an and the Qur'anic laws? Does he need to know philosophy? Does he need to know ilm al-Rijal? They have a disagreement amongst themselves in defining who is the a'lam. And we're sitting here labeling this guy's da'lam, this guy's not a mujtahid, this guy. Number two. When was this concept introduced to the Shi'i ideology? Was it introduced in the time of the Imams? Was it introduced after the time of the Imams? Was it introduced, for example, in the time of Al-Kulayni? Was it introduced a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, five hundred years ago? When? How did this evolve and become part of the Shi'i ideology? This concept is found in the works of Al-Allam Al-Halli, who died in 1325. Prior to that, the concept of al-alamiyyah was not even introduced in our books, the most learned. Listen, this is very important information. But it was never practiced until 1864. The period of Sheikh Murtada al-Ansari, Sheikh al-A'zam, 155 years ago. Until 155 years ago, people were not even asking who is the A'lam. How can I determine the A'lam? Where does the A'lam live? And when it comes to A'lamiyya, we have so many different opinions, mashallah. If you go to Lebanon, they will give you two names. If you go to Iraq, they will give you four names. If you go to Iran, they will give you five names. If you go to Pakistan, they will give you 16 names. If you go to the Khoja community, 1.5 names. So what is it? Even when you go to scholars, if you go to scholars themselves, even those who live in the Hawza, Every one of them will give you a different name. 
and you ask them why, every one of them will give you many reasons why. A variety of reasons why. Every one of them has the ability to convince you that this person is the alam. But let me tell you, you know who the most honest ones are and what the most honest answer is? The ones that tell you, go ask someone else. The ones that tell you, give you five names, six names, at least four names. Why? Because determining, I don't want to be misquoted, so I want you to pay attention. Determining the a'lam is an impossible task. It is something that cannot be achieved. How do we determine that this man is the most learned alim? In everything, in salah, and siyam, and zakat, and hajj, and diyat, and every aspect of religion, he is the most learned. Yes, it's possible that one of them is more learned in this section, and the other one is more learned. And even if such a personality existed, how do you know? How have you figured this out? Are you some sort of genius that was able to... Or, even if you're a genius, you would have to spend time with the top five, top six, top ten maraja, 24-7 for 40 years to determine who is the alam. And that is something extremely difficult to achieve. That is why today we have two opinions. Listen to them. One will tell you you don't even have to follow the alam. The concept of following the A'lam is an opinion of scholars introduced by Allama al-Halli, re-emphasized by al-Shaykh al-A'zam, but we don't believe in it, we disagree. If you are a faqih, if you are a mujtahid, then people can follow that mujtahid. People, people can follow that faqih. And, and if you read history, the history of Shia Islam, at the time of Imam al-Sadiq, at the time of Imam al-Baqir, and onwards, at the time of Imam al-Rada, at the time of Imam al-Jawad, at the time of Imam Hassan al-Askari, at the time of Imam al-Hadi, there were many scholars and mujtahids and fuqaha. And people ask them. People ask them. Whether it was Sayyid Abdul Azim al Hassani, I'm giving you those names so you go and look them up on your own. We don't have time to talk about their biography. But if you read their biography, you will realize that people just went and asked them. They were ulama. Sayyid Abdul Azim al Hassani of Ray, <coughs> Zakaria ibn Adam al Ash'ari al Qummi of Qum, Zurara ibn Ayun, Muhammad ibn Muslim. Hisham ibn al-Hakam, Aban bin Taglub. Those were the companions of the Imams. They were fuqaha, they were mujtahids. People asked them. They weren't going around looking for who's Yes, there are traditions, though they are weak, and chain of narrators that indicate 
A person comes to the Imam, he says, we ask the opinion of scholars, your scholars, your fuqaha, fuqaha of Ahlul Bayt, and they give us a different opinion, different perspectives. Which one should we take? He says, take the opinion of the A'lam, the most learned of them. Which is obvious. If you can determine that there are two people next to each other, one of them is A'lam and one of them is not. So obviously you're going to take the opinion of the A'lam. The Aql tells you to do that. But if it's very difficult for you to determine the A'lam, that's where the question lies. Then you follow a mujtahid. That is why today, many of the mujtahids, and I have decided that I'm not going to take out any names today. But you can go and look this up. You can ask the ultimate marja' Ayatollah al-Uthma, Google, and determine which maraja' allow you to follow a mujtahid, and he does not need to be the a'lam. Number three, what is tab'id? What is udul? Udul is when you switch from a marja' to a marja'. And some people think that's forbidden for them to switch a marja'. When she becomes baligh, when he becomes baligh, his mom, his dad, his uncle who owns the Dunkin' Donuts, they tell him that you have to follow this marja'. Why? Why do I have to follow this marja'? Because this marja' is from our village. Because this marja is our friend. When we go to back home, they invite us for dinner to their house. <clears throat> because this marja speaks the same language that we do. So you follow this marja, and when you follow this marja, they think that they have to die following this marja too. The whole concept of following a marja is following someone who is alive, who can solve your problems today, he can give you solutions today, and having to go to a variety of scholars and variety of opinions. This is the biggest problem in our community. The biggest problem is that we've created idols from personalities. And we're not willing to let go. So, al-udul means that if you're convinced the marja you follow today, lacks, for example, the understanding of your environment, your society, or you've realized that he's not the alam, or for whatever reason, obviously it has to be a legitimate reason, why did you switch your marja? This one is easy. You know, that's it. I just. It's not based on ease. It's not based on convenience. It's not based on the language. It's not based on how bigger the amama is. It's not based on any of that. You know what it's based on? It's based on the abil your ability. Your ability. To stand on the day of judgment and say, Oh Allah, I was convinced to follow this marja. That's what it is. No one else can argue otherwise. No one can argue otherwise. 
The criteria is that you have to stand in the day of judgment and say, Oh Allah, I did my research. I did what it takes. I asked. I was convinced I have to follow this marja'ah. That's it. That's what it is. So udul is switching from one marja' to another. Is this allowed? Yes, it's allowed. In fact, it's a must. Under the right circumstances, if you feel you're obliged to now switch your marja', you must do the udul. Number three, what is tab'iv? Tab'iv is following more than one marja'. Is this allowed or is this not allowed? Is following one marja a myth or is it a reality? Some people will tell you, no, you must follow one marja. And if you don't follow this one marja and you don't pay your khums to him, then your salah is not accepted, your marriage is not accepted, your hajj is not accepted, your Islam is batil. Is this reality or is this a myth? It's a myth. Why? I'll tell you why. Because according to all of our maraja, I'm going to be as precise and I want you to pay full undivided attention. According to all of our maraja today, and I challenge anybody to bring an opinion otherwise. If there are two maraja, three maraja at the same level of knowledge to you, you believe that they are at the same absolute level of knowledge and also the same absolute level of adala, justice. They are at the same level, absolute level of taqwa and piety. You can follow all of them. Two, three, whatever it is. Even though one of our great maraja, I said I'm not going to take out name today. Take, take out names today. One of our great maraja, one of probably the greatest in the contemporaries who has passed away, says no. Even if they are at the same level, even if they are at the same level, choose the path of ihtiyat. So if somebody tells you, for example, break your fast at 526, and the other one says, break your fast as far at 5.36, you follow that person. That says 36. You take the path of ihtiyat. But the popular opinion, the popular opinion of today's maraja tells you if they are at the absolute level, same exact thing in piety and taqwa and knowledge, then you can follow three of them. And that is the popular opinion of the maraja today. So when is it, let's discuss this, very interesting. When is it that tab'id is allowed and when is it that tab'id is wajib? According to the popular opinion of scholars today. And popular I mean more than 50%, more than 60%, sometimes 80%. Tab'id is allowed if you have a marja' who has a fatwa, and in the end of the fatwa, he says it's ihtiyat, precaution that you don't do this. Or it's a precaution that you do this. So there, if you want to follow him, continue following him, then you, when he says ihtiyat, don't do this, you don't do it. When he says ihtiyat, do this, you do it. 
But you're allowed to do tab'id, meaning what? Go to another marja' Go to another marja' that again fits the criteria and follow him if he allows you. Follow him if he says you're okay to do it. So this is when tab'id is allowed. When is tab'id allowed? Tab'id is also allowed when you have maraja' at the same level of knowledge, of experience, of taqwa, of piety, righteousness. At the same level, you may follow two, three, whatever that number is, and their fatwas. But when does it become wajib? It becomes wajib when you reach a conclusion that this marja' is most learned when it comes to, for example, hajj and zakat and diyat. And this marja' is most learned when it comes to, for example, women issues, when it comes to political affairs, when it comes to, for example, uh, the laws of inheritance. If under the correct criteria you know that this marja' is more learned here than the one that I am following, you are obligated to follow the a'lam there. According to the opinion of the ulama, the scholars, the fuqaha. Why is it? Why is it that we even follow maraja' brothers and sisters? This is the most important question. Some of us, we don't even know why we have to follow a marja'. We have to follow a marja' because this marja' is meant to take us to Ahl al-Bayt. This marja' is meant to introduce us to the thought of Ahl al-Bayt. We are not following the marja' himself. We are following the Ahl al-Bayt through him. And we follow Ahl al-Bayt. Why? Because they are the gate. They are the gate to the city of knowledge of Rasulullah. Ultimately, we need to get to Allah through the marja'. Isn't that the case? So let me ask you, with all this disunity, when it comes to maraja', if this was witnessed by our imams, would they be happy with this? Would they be okay with all this division? Absolutely not. Would Rasulullah be happy with this? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is happy when we are divided or united. When, when we are able to benefit from all these scholars. When we are benefiting from the legacy of all of our ulama. Absolutely. It is the pleasure of Allah. And the Ahl al-Bayt is when we are united as brothers, as sisters. And like I said, the greatest banner that unites us is the banner of Sayyid al-Shuhada, al-Imam al-Husayn. Wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah.